What if I did it for you? Did what? Harmed them, Clarice. The ones who've harmed you. What if I made them scream apologies? No, I shouldn't even say it because you'll feel, with your perfect grasp on right and wrong, that you were somehow a even though you wouldn't be. Hannibal. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. Welcome to our bonus episode. Today we are going to be diving into the mind of serial killers. More specifically, we're going to be talking about the dark triad. We have done an episode in the past about serial killers. I believe it was another October bonus episode. Yeah, it was October last year where I got to dive into some historical serial killers. Today's going to be a little bit different, but a great companion episode because today we're talking again about that psychology. What makes the mind of a serial killer tick? Before we really dive in, though, we are just a couple of days away from National Novel Writing Month. Don't forget about it. If you want, you can join our nano group on the NaNoWriMo website. And of course, we are both active on our Writing Roots Discord server. We will be doing sprints for NaNoWriMo as often as possible. I'll try to run them in the mornings, and then Lee will try to run them in the afternoon evenings. I volunteered you for that. (laughs) But... There is always an opportunity to get your questions answered as quickly as possible in something specific to your story, because I will have Discord open pretty much all month long. Yeah, we'll have Discord open, and I'm until about two-thirds the way through the month. I will be up all night long, so no matter what your schedule, there's likely going to be one of us around to answer a question. Also, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. We will be posting prompts, we'll be posting ideas, anything to kind of help motivate you along. Because the biggest, I think, difficulty with NaNoWriMo is losing motivation after about one week. You get one week, you're really good, you're on top of it, and then life happens and you start to fall away. Maybe you get stuck on a certain plot line. So follow us any of those places and we will do our best to help keep you motivated, keep that creativity well going. And I encourage you to follow us on NaNoWriMo as Lee S's and Lee Hull so you can help keep me accountable for my NaNoWriting project as well. On top of NaNo, November also means the month before December. No. <laughs> Every December, we do our frequently asked questions. We get asked questions throughout the year, and we try to answer them in the context of whatever we are doing this series on. But some of them are a little bit of outliers in this way or that. So December becomes our frequently asked questions month. If you have a question, let us know. It could be something that we haven't answered yet. It could be something you want more information on. Hit us up on Discord, hit us up on social, send us an email, whatever you need. Send us that question or questions so we can try our best to get them answered in December. The sooner you send those in, the better. That way we have time to, if we need, research and plan it out and make sure that your questions get answered. On to today's episode. Woo! Let's get into this dark triad. It was a phrase coined by researchers Paulus and Williams in 2002, 
And the definition is that it refers to a trio of negative personality traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy or psychopathy, all which share the same common malevolent features. Since 2002, other people have added other facets to the dark triad. So sometimes you'll see four or even five represented but we're going with the original three that Paulus and Williams designed. These traits are most often found in serial killers, which brings us back to one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it this time of year. All of these things don't necessarily mean that you will have a serial killer, but these are common traits to be represented, especially in combination. Just being a narcissist doesn't make you a murderer. Just being a psychopath doesn't make you a murderer. And also inverse on that, just because you're a murderer doesn't mean you're a psychopath. Psychopath is actually a like psychological definition. And I recently listened to a podcast where they were very insistent that we stop calling all murderers psychopaths because that's just not true. There isn't a great noun that applies to a person for Machiavellianism. Most of what I've seen have just referred to them as mocks. So that's what we're going to be saying for the rest of this episode. That's M-A-C-H. We'll be getting into each of these facets in greater detail. But initially, we're going to talk about the three different things and how they interact with each other. Before we get into this combo, let's take a quick look at the brief definitions of each one. The first one, psychopaths are most known for their emotional callousness with occasional fits of rage that burst out and then recall something right back into themselves. That is very much a psychopath type trait, and it's often used to control the situation that they're in. Your narcissists are generally very entitled, self-important. The name came from Narcissus in, I think, Greek mythology who met his doom because he caught a reflection of himself in a pond. And there was some cursing involved, fun stuff. But it is that very self-centered look on the world. And that third one, Machiavellianism, is the spider planning of how you envision the world to play out. These people are the long game people, not necessarily a react in the moment kind of person. Between the three, there are some things that two have in common that a third doesn't. So you can use all of these different combinations that we're talking about today as a recipe for your character. And that starts with their outlook on time. Narcissists and psychopaths are in the moment kind of people while your mocks are forward thinkers. They're the ones that plan and plot the narcissists and psychopaths don't tend to do a lot of that long-term plotting. The mocks and the psychopaths have in common that they're not inherently emotional. Whatever they're doing internally, it's not particularly driven by emotion where narcissism can come from a place of insecurity in themselves. So they are fueling themselves and propping themselves up emotionally because they don't feel like they're recognized for what they are or that they're given enough credit for who they are. And your mocks and your narcissists carry some amount of level-headedness where they are able to maintain that control. Even though the narcissists are the ones who are fueled by emotion, they're very good at controlling that emotion. 
while your psychopaths tend to lash out a lot, they are emotionless for a while and then bam, sudden emotion, and then it's gone. So if I called you out and said, hey, you're being a psychopath and you were a psychopath, how would you react? It would be very charming and plausible answers. Give a reasonable excuse for whatever it is I'm being called out for. If you were a narcissist and I called you out. That would tend to be a lot more of a freak out where it would probably turn a lot of the blame back on someone else because narcissists inherently don't take blame for anything. It's always someone else's fault. So it would be a little bit of a panic situation, but blaming others. And what if you were a mock? The question would never get asked. You'd never get called out because Machiavellians, by nature, are that forward thinking in their plotters. So they will make sure that that situation is addressed before it ever comes up. I got to say, after I was doing the research for these three, I feel like I qualify for two out of the three. <laughs> Let me guess. The one you're missing is narcissist. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a combination of these traits, you'll have a handful of things that come along with. One, they're going to be pretty darn callous people. They're also going to be very manipulative, especially if you throw in that Machiavellianism. Yeah, I feel like the Machiavellianism with the narcissism is just controlling all kinds of people. It's a very puppeteering kind of self-serving type character. The people who have all three are also willing to do or say pretty much anything to get their way. Whatever their way is depends on which facet of the triad is most dominant. And along with that comes an inflated sense of self and a shamelessness about self-promotion, where, especially with the narcissism, they think they can do no wrong. They know they can do no wrong. So why not promote themselves? Why not put themselves above everybody else? And the psychopath, in combination with that, is disregarding everyone else's value in the relationship and only inflates themselves instead. A lot of the people who have this can be very impulsive, even if they have that Machiavellianism in them, because they, after the moment, think through the next couple of steps. They know how to get rid of the body. The impulsiveness comes down to the event itself, the drive toward being a villain. And that's why I think a lot of serial killers with this dark triad tend to have those very impulsive murders where they will just see somebody and say, I need to kill that person. And they get away with it because they have that ability that after they let themselves be impulsive, they can plan it out and make sure that they can't get caught. I watched a movie. I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but it was basically an experienced serial killer teaching an amateur serial killer how to do things. And they're driving in the freeway talking and someone cuts them off and the experienced one's like, how about that guy? They won't trace a link back to him. He clearly deserves it. We should kill that one. And then they go and do. The next thing that the people who share these traits will often have in common is that they will engage in dangerous behavior, sometimes committing crimes. Again, not everybody with the dark triad turns into a serial killer, but it does lend itself to committing crimes, to pushing the edge, because they do put themselves above society and often above society's laws. And right in with that, 
that zero regard for how their actions affect anybody else. Nobody else is as important as they are, and nobody else matters. So they are the only people that matter. There is zero empathy in these types of characters. Let's take a quick look at some very common examples in fiction of characters who represent and have traits of this dark triad. First off, a ton of George R. R. Martin characters have all three of these. We'll talk next month about why that doesn't reflect on Martin, but <laughs> makes you wonder a little bit. A lot of the characters that we list for each of the individual traits are technically part of the dark triad, but they lean toward one of the traits more than the other, and that's why it pops up in that particular one. These ones that we're listing right now are a good balance between all three. The first one is the character of Amy from Gone Girl. You also have Alex in A Clockwork Orange. You have James Bond in Casino Royale, especially. See, not all of them have to be bad guys. Ebenezer Scrooge, especially at the beginning of the novel, fits into this dark triad. Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. And then Dexter Morgan in the Dexter novels. He has it a little bit in the TV show as well, but I feel like it's not quite as potent because we do try to emotionally connect with him when he gets a girlfriend and all that. Yeah, and with Dexter, with Bond, you see that not all of the characters with this dark triad are villains. You can be an anti-hero. You can be an actual hero of the story. It all just kind of depends on how you choose to show your character. So let's take a closer look at that psychopath. This one tends to be the first one listed in almost every version. There's no particular reason why they're in this order, but because our definition came in this order, that's how we're doing it too. That psychopath has that callousness, that cynicism, but they can also on the other side be that loose cannon. They're very difficult to predict because they're not really driven by something particular as much as reacting to what's going on around them. So according to psychological definitions, psychopaths are characterized by a lack of empathy and remorse. It is often seen to be the darkest aspect of this triad because psychopaths generally cause more harm to individuals and to society than narcissists or Machiavellianists. While psychopath itself is not technically a diagnosis, it can be represented as an antisocial personality disorder. A lot of these are very difficult to diagnose, but they're pretty clearly defined. Some of these examples that you're going to find, Hannibal Lecter, great for just being completely out there in a cool, calm, logical way. You also have Kilgrave in the Jessica Jones Marvel series. I actually couldn't finish watching that show because David Tennant did such a good job at playing a psychopath that it like hurt my heart because I'm so used to seeing him as my favorite doctor. See, he was like the only redeeming part of that show <laughs> in my world. Yeah, that's the thing. He did so good at it, but uh, my doctor. <laughs> Stephen King's Misery. The main character is an author who gets kidnapped by a rabid fan, and she forces him to finish his novel. I feel like I need one of these sometimes, but not Anne Wilkes specifically. She has especially that psychopathy embedded in making sure he writes the book the way she wants him to. 
technically Jay Gatsby from The Great Gatsby is a psychopath in this sense, but it doesn't come across as wanting to harm other people as most are defined as, but rather his is a very self-pitying and self-serving version. I'm also going to say Reacher. I might sound a little bit like a Reacher villain when I say that. Dude's a psychopath. He kind of is because of his emotional callousness toward most other people. There's a whole book where one character is trying to get him to open up about his brother's death, and he's just like, eh, oh well, nothing I could have done about it. He's very callous, but has those fits of rage that come across as fantastic violence. Unfortunately, this term, this word, is often misused. For one, psychopaths are not sociopaths. Sociopaths tend to be more emotionally erratic and don't have a regard for morality. Psychopaths are calm, they're collected, they're controlled, except in those fits of rage. If your character can put on a face of charm, they're more likely to be a psychopath than a sociopath. The sociopath has a difficult time contextualizing any emotion. One of the things that psychopaths will also do to make sure that they are in complete control of a situation is they will have that explosion and then recognize it and quickly control it so that everyone else in the room is still reacting to this explosion and they look like the calm and controlled one and they can vilify everyone else who's being irrational and emotional. Other key traits that apply to the psychopath include being criminal. And again, this is often in combination with the other parts of the dark triad, but psychopaths put themselves above the law. They are callous towards the impacts of their actions towards other people, so they don't see that it is bad or immoral to take a life because that person annoyed them, so they deserve to die. Another thing you're going to see is a promiscuousness with the character, where they are pursuing the high that comes with having any emotion because they don't have emotions most of the time. And being promiscuous can trigger chemicals in your body that makes the character feel something, anything. And I think kind of going along with both of those is that they see people as not human. They see them as a means to an end. So they don't mind going out and using people to satisfy their needs because that's just what they're there for. My brother and I joke all the time that everyone is an NPC. They aren't actually people. We both, of course, know that's not true, but it's a lot easier to get through life that way. And it drives his wife, my sister-in-law, absolutely batty. Like, no, they're humans. They have feelings too. Yeah, but it doesn't affect me. So they're just NPCs. Going along with that is that egocentric personality trait where it is all about them. Other people are there to serve them and they have a very strong lack of guilt over anything that they do to those other people. They also tend to be very grandiose and make a big show about everything that's going on around them. So with that egocentric comes this showmanship of this is the type of thing that I need to do in order to get an emotion out of somebody else. And they lack empathy. And I think this is what connects all of these other traits together is that inability to put themselves in someone else's shoes, to look through 
the viewpoint of someone else to see how actions would impact and how any of that would have a long-term effect. They just don't care enough. The psychopaths tend to be the most impulsive, but they also tend to be some of the most antisocial of the collection. So since other people aren't actually people, there's no particular reason to waste my time around them. Now let's get into the second element of this dark triad, the narcissism. These are very self-entitled, self-important, and self-centered people. However, they have a strong need for validation in how they feel because like we mentioned at the beginning, a lot of this narcissism is based on a sense of insecurity, whether that's an insecurity within themselves or of themselves, or more likely, an insecurity that other people don't recognize how good, how important, how strong they are. I feel like narcissism has been tossed around social media a lot. There are some ways that people misunderstand it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it does have to be officially diagnosed for them to officially be a narcissist. The definition of narcissism is that it's characterized by excessive self-regard and heightened arrogance. And while many narcissists are merely frustrating, extreme or malignant narcissists can become emotionally abusive or even violent when they aren't given the special treatment they believe they're deserved. It's interesting because of the three, this is the one that has the most protagonists in the list. We have Dr. House. Of course, he kind of qualifies for all three, but mostly the narcissism because he really is the best in the world. And one of my favorite examples, Gilderoy Lockhart, definitely a narcissist who used other people in order to boister his own resume, I guess. But of the Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers, which one didn't try to kill Harry? (laughs) I mean, technically Gilderoy didn't, but he did try to make Harry forget everything about his life, which is almost equivalent. Just, you know, not murder him. In Game of Thrones, you see this a lot with Cersei Lannister and her son, Joffrey Baratheon. These characters are in charge and everyone needs to bow to them. And if they aren't, they need to be beheaded These characters will use their power in order to make sure everyone else knows their place. On the comedy side of things, Zaphod Beeblebrox from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is definitely a narcissist, both of his heads. In the comic book series and TV show The Boys, the character of Homelander is driven by his narcissism. Everyone since he was a child has been telling him, you're the greatest superhero ever, and he believes it. I also love Vicini from The Princess Bride as a narcissist. I think him and Prince Humperdinck both qualify for narcissism, but Vicini has that wonderful quote of being like, have you heard of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, morons? Never go in with a Sicilian when death is on the line. (laughs) And in Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara is another great example of the world revolving around her. Now, this term is commonly misused. I know that the name of it came from Narcissus, who was vain and stared at his reflection in a pond. But it is more than just being self-obsessed and absorbed by your looks and how pretty you are. Being self-absorbed does not make somebody a narcissist. Being ambitious at your job doesn't make you a narcissist. 
there are so many people saying this person's a narcissist when really often the person accusing everyone else of being a narcissist is, you guessed it, a narcissist. (laughs) Just because you're on social media posting a lot of selfies because you spend a lot of time getting ready in front of the bathroom mirror or you talk loudly on a cell phone does not mean you are a narcissist. Narcissists tend to compulsively lie. They tend to insult and even scream and shout and belittle their partners because they have to feel that complete control, that complete domination that they are better and that they are in control of everything around them. And because we do get a professional diagnosis for narcissists, we can tell you there are about 200,000 cases diagnosed per year. So let's get into the key aspects, the key traits of narcissism. Surprisingly, and I think, you know, contrary to how it's often misused, more often your narcissists are men. Because you see a lot of the women posing in front of the mirror and making sure their makeup and their physical appearance is a high priority for these characters. We tend to feel like females are more likely to do it, but it's less about their physical appearance and more about how often everyone else worships the ground we stand on. So narcissists have an excessive need for admiration. Everybody needs that confidence boost, a little bit of admiration here or there. Narcissists thrive on recognition from other people. And on the flip side of that, they cannot handle any criticism. If you are accusing me of doing something wrong and I'm a narcissist, I'm going to turn it back on you or I'm going to point it at anybody else. Negatives are only ever applied to everyone around me. They are not allowed to be applied to me. Along with that comes a strong disregard for anyone else's feelings. The only feeling in other people that matters is that they admire me and my gloriousness. Along with the fact that it can be diagnosed, there are official treatments for narcissism, but there is no official cure. I can't give you a pill and make you suddenly care about other people's feelings. I think a lot of that just comes from a self-awareness that that is a thing that they can then address. But if they're not aware that they're a narcissist, then things can get out of control because they do have that sense of entitlement, that driving need to be important. Not all narcissists, though, are evil. Some people will get that admiration that they want by doing good things. And sometimes you'll even see them being helpful and caring toward other people. But in reality, unless they're getting treatment for it, it's more than likely a front that they're putting on in order to turn the crank and get a particular response out of the person. It's a manipulation to be kind and caring because now everyone can admire me for my kindness and caringness. There are different kinds of narcissism. The one that is the bad kind of narcissist that will do bad things is a malignant narcissist. They're the ones without quite as many borders holding them back from violating other people's independence. Yeah, they're more likely to also have those traits of being a psychopath or a mock. They also tend to monopolize a conversation. So if you're writing a narcissist-type character, at least half of the conversation between three people needs to come from this one character. Or if you have two people, it should be two-thirds of the conversation from that one character. They have unreasonable expectations of everyone. 
partially themselves, but especially the people around them, because they all need to be serving the narcissist and doing whatever it takes to please the narcissist. The narcissist will also make a show of flaunting rules and social conventions. Yeah, I know the speed limit's 65, but I'm going to go 85 because I can, and you can't control me because I'm better than you. And I think the key aspect in all of this, because they thrive on that attention, because they thrive on being better than societal structures, they fear abandonment. They have a deep fear of suddenly being cut off from all of that praise, from all of that recognition. They cannot handle being abandoned. So if you're looking at how this applies to your serial killer character, these are the ones that write to law enforcement and taunt them. The Axeman of New Orleans may not have ever been caught, but everyone knew who that person was and everyone was afraid of them. Now let's get into the third and final piece of the Dark Triad, Machiavellianism. These are your particularly fun ones to write because they do have that puppeteering aspect to them. These characters tend to be hyper-intelligent and very good at the chess and understanding the long game, whereas the other two are very short, immediate, and impulsive. Your Machiavellianism-driven characters will be driven to accumulate power in the long term more than anything immediate. So this is not a mental health diagnosis, but the definition is that it describes a manipulative individual who deceives and tricks others in order to achieve their goals. There are some evidence that suggests of the three dark traits in this triad, Machiavellianism is the most closely tied to high intelligence. We have struggled pronouncing this more than just this episode, but we can blame the 16th century writer Niccolo Machiavelli because he was the one who first wrote it down, and this was kind of his political philosophy, was this string-pulling puppeteering. He was also, I believe, deeply interconnected with the Medici. If you need a research tangent, the Medici are great for that, especially when defining the political aspects of a villain. Mocks can be separated into basically two categories, your high mocks and your low mocks. The high mocks are more likely to include the entire triad, and they're the people who have accumulated power successfully, whereas the low mocks tend to be less successful in that. They still want to pull all of the strings, but they literally have fewer strings to pull. So they don't have the ability to express their Machiavellianism as much as someone who is a high mock. So they're mocks on a small scale. <laughs> One of the first examples, of course, is Sherlock Holmes and his counterpart Moriarty. Both of them are mocks. Back to Game of Thrones, both Lord Baelish slash Littlefinger and Lord Varys slash the Spider, both of them are high mocks and posed against each other. So you get to see two masterminds playing chess at the same time with the players in the political center of the world. One of my favorite examples is Iago. I'm not talking Aladdin Iago. I am talking Othello's Iago. Yeah, because of this particular fact, I got a less than stellar grade in English my senior year of high school. <laughs> 
I was really bored in English. It was basically the same thing I've been learning since, you know, seventh grade. Uh-huh. So I cherry-picked evidence throughout the play to say that Iago's wife was the true Machiavellian mastermind, whereas Iago was her main puppet. <laughs> My English teacher was not a fan. <laughs> you didn't understand this play at all. No, I was just bored. Yeah. No, I did. I just didn't care. <laughs> A little more commonly known would be Walter White from Breaking Bad. He has this long-term plan to have a whole bunch of money. And especially for a character who is defined by his limited amount of time, it's a very interesting progression from front to back. Scar in The Lion King is the Machiavellian where he manipulates in order to gain control of the throne. And you can also say the uncle in Hamlet. And if you've ever seen the TV show House of Cards, Frank Underwood is a great example of giving just enough information to move all of the other people in the way he wants in order to accomplish his goals. Now, this term Machiavellianism is not very commonly misused, I think mostly because it's hard to use it in the first place. Yep. (laughs) But it is very well known that it is this manipulative puppeteering aspect of things. And also because it's not a psychological definition, it's not a diagnosis, it can kind of apply to a lot of different things. Is it funny to anyone else that the narcissist is the one that needs the validation of being an official diagnosis? (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Anyway. But there are common traits that go along with someone who is a mock. If they have a single target, often your protagonist, they won't destroy their life all at once. They will take it apart piece by piece. They're the ones who are likely to have a spy planted amidst the good guys and knows all of the weaknesses and the mother's maiden name of the hero so that he can pull this support away, pull this support away. So instead of taking a baseball bat to the Jenga tower, They're doing it little bit by little bit, taking their time because the joy is in the tearing pieces away. So I have recently been re-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And in the, I think it's second season where Angel loses his soul and becomes the bad vampire again, he is a mock because he focuses in on Buffy and manipulates everything around her to destroy her life, to make her guilty before he finally targets her specifically. Another trait, I'm sorry, pantsers, but another trait of these Machiavellian-type villains is they will always be a couple of steps ahead of your main character. In the book that I'm reading currently, the main character gets hit by a blow dart so that he can bleed so that the hunting dogs can follow him to wherever his refuge is. So he just goes, okay, uh, that was a minor wound and brushes it off when actually it's a major key for the villain seven steps down the road. Mocks are also less prone to fits of rage. They are very in control of their emotions because they are in control of the situation because they are steps ahead. That allows them that ability to adjust their plans. They often don't just think of one single line of planning, but they have a flow chart of a plan. 
if this happens, then we'll go this way. And if this happens, we'll go this way. And if this happens, then we'll continue on this line. So they have that ability to adapt and react to various situations that are out of their control because they've planned and that keeps them from being enraged because their plan still works. In programming, you're going to see the term if then else. So if I invite him to the place, then he walks in through the door, I'm going to lock the door behind him. Else, if he doesn't walk in through the door, then I'm going to have the sniper hit him from this side. So that backup plan on backup plan on backup plan is how these characters work. And you can use the sniper later if you want to as a villain. Obviously, as a storyteller, you have to choose what pieces you're introducing when. But as a villain, having 17 different backup plans for your backup plans makes it so you can be in complete control all the time. And that, I think, is really what gives them the Puppet Master title. Because even if they aren't actually controlling somebody, they are manipulating just enough around them to funnel them in the direction that they want. And there's this very clear idea that feeds in nicely with the other two that we've talked about, that people are tools. They aren't people. They don't have emotions. They aren't as important as me. People are just tools. They're expendable. So if I really wanted to screw with you, I would convince your husband to do something and then I would reinforce it from a completely different direction and it would completely screw with you using other people to play the game. I'm going to use my granddaughter to talk to this person because he's more likely to align himself with a poor, innocent young girl. And in the mind of a mock, the person's value is determined by their usefulness to the mock, to their plan, to their plot. So we've been talking for quite a while about a lot of these different pieces and how you construct not just serial killers, but villains of all kinds. Consider having your villain be a psychopath and have that callousness and that secret joy in hurting other people. Consider having your villain be a narcissist where everything orbits around them and nothing else matters. Consider having your villain be a mock where they just get to puppeteer everything. Or combine those pieces and give them the full dark triad because if you're enjoying your villain and you understand your villain, then you can write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. <laughs>